Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, since 1996, online at thepulp.net. This Pulp Event Podcast features a talk about the science fiction pulp magazine, Startling Stories, by Ed Hulls, editor of Blood and Thunder magazine. The talk was recorded on Friday, August 8, 2014, at Pulp Fest 2014 in Columbus, Ohio. Mike Chom co-introduces Ed. Startling Stories was uh, a thrilling magazine, thrilling group magazine, uh, standard magazine. Ned Fines owned that company. And it uh, published a complete novel in each issue. A lot of them, a lot of the stories are, are space opera, just fun, fun stories. Good, a lot of good writers in there, Ed Hamilton, Jack Williamson, yeah, but Ed's going to tell you all about that. Uh, at the end of, at the conclusion of his uh, presentation, which is going to last, what, a half hour, Ed? At yeah, most. half hour. We will have a door prize of the three planetaires, so stay tuned for that. Okay, so Mike gave you the basics. We're cheating a little bit because the, the first issue of Startling is cover dated January 1939, which means it actually hit the newsstands probably in November of 1938. <clears throat> now, as you can see from this first cover, this, by the way, these, all, these scans all come from my collection. And I guess I'll, I'll preface the presentation quickly by saying that Startling Stories may not have been the most distinguished science fiction magazine, but it's certainly one of the most fun, and it's, it's particularly one of the most fun to collect because it has um, several different elements. Each issue, unlike its companion magazine, Thrilling Wonder Stories, which mostly published short stories and novelettes, each issue of Startling had a full-length novel, and many of them really were full-length. As, as I'm sure most of you know, pulp novels uh, that they touted on the cover you know, a novel to, could be 20,000 words, which is really a novella. But Startling Stories did publish a lot of true book-length novels, which in fact were printed as hardcovers later on, and they were originally uh, printed here. Secondarily, to back up the lead novel, they would reprint a story. They had, um, I think they called it a Hall of Fame. Every issue they would reprint a story. Now, where did they get these stories from? Because Thrilling had purchased Hugo Gernsback's Wonder Stories, an awful lot of these stories came from the Gernsback Library. I mean, they figured, well, we bought this stuff, we own the stuff, we own the copyrights, why not get some of these stories back into print? And Startling, uh, thanks to Leo Margulies and his editors, which included Mort Weisinger, Weisinger came from the fan community. He was very receptive to the, not only the likes and dislikes of the fans, but he was very receptive to their requests. So he was the perfect guy to be uh, working for Margulies at this time, because basically the Thrilling Group, before they bought Thrilling Wonder Stories, they didn't have anybody on the staff that knew anything about science fiction. So the, they considered it very important to get to that uh, community, and having Weisinger on the staff really helped them, because he had links that they didn't have. So. Um, Finally, to say that when I say that it's a fun magazine collect, you'll see here, you'll see a lot of covers, a lot of what we call good girl art, which uh, uh, at a certain point they drifted away from the robots and the monsters and they wanted to get good looking girls in there. And Earl Berge, who painted most of these covers, uh, 
pretty much the creator of what we call the brass bra phenomenon, which uh, you'll see demonstrated in many of these covers later on. So let's see if we can get this work. Now this again, the novel was The Black Flame by Stanley Weinbaum. Weinbaum, of course, was introduced, his first story was a, Mar a Martian Odyssey in 1934 issue of Wonder Stories, and he took the science fiction community by storm. Unfortunately, he died very early. Uh, the Black Flame was published posthumously, and uh, it was considered, because Weinbaum at this time was still so highly regarded, it was considered an excellent thing to lead off a new magazine. Oops, this went way ahead. Uh, these are out of order now, but I don't know how much difference that makes. This is a later issue, um, Five Steps to Tomorrow. This happens to be the very first issue of Startling I ever bought. Um, and I read Five Steps to Tomorrow, which I didn't know anything about. Turns out it's a science fiction reworking of Account of Monte Cristo. A guy is uh, accused of a crime, and he's sent to a prison planet kind of an asteroid where all these convicted felons are sent to uh, um, s supposedly for life. Well, he befriends somebody there, he escapes from the prison planet, and he comes back to Earth to get vengeance on the three guys who framed him and sent him there. So that is basically, that's the plot of The Count of Monte Cristo. In terms of uh, the writers of science fiction who were not technologically oriented, this kind of plot was an easy way out because they didn't have to defend or explain complex scientific principles. They could take an old-fashioned story and they could gussy it up as science fiction and get away with it without having to uh, explain, you know, how this atom, you know, splits this molecule or whatever, so. Uh, Oscar J. Friend, who wrote this novel, The Kid from Mars, he later edited the magazine. Um, this is another I believe this is a Bergie cover. This is another early one. The Bergie covers have great girls and they have some heroic guys, but his monsters are terrible. Uh, half of his monsters wind up looking like giant walruses. I don't know why that is, but it's another early issue. Henry Cutner, of course, at this time was just still trying to emerge from a, a kind of a debacle he'd gotten himself into through no fault of his own. He had written some stories for Marvel Science Stories in 1938 and 39 that were, um, he was ordered to inject sex into the stories. Well, the fans, the serious fans, the, the ones who took science fiction seriously, were very upset about this and they thought that Kuttner was a kind of degenerate. They didn't realize that he was ordered to do this. This was at the same time that Red Circle's uh, Weird Menace magazines and even their detective magazines were also injecting heavy doses of sex into the stories. So Kuttner, as a consequence, was not taken seriously as a science fiction writer for a long time, but he was nonetheless talented and prolific, and so there was always a market for him at Startling. A Yank at Valhalla, this is another example of a science fiction story um, uh, taking off on other works. In this case, A Yank at Oxford. Edmund Hamilton, of course, um, had written for Weird Tales. He created the stories of the Intergalactic Patrol for Weird Tales. He worked a lot at uh, Thrilling under his own name and other names. And he, of course, would become the contract writer who would provide uh, the Captain Future novels when they launched that magazine later in the year. It's another Bergie. 
story, Manly Wade Wellman, who another one of those very talented guys who straddled several genres. He was a master of the weird tale. He also wrote science fiction. Uh, he wrote some straight-up fantasy stories. He wrote historical stories. He could do it all. You can see there the worlds of if. That's another famous Stanley Weinbaum story that's being reprinted. This particular one is one of several Rudolf Bolarski covers that um, were modeled after stills. These are the, uh, several, this is the first of several covers that are clearly modeled from stills from the Flash Gordon serials. You'll see that the, the, the hero in the center wear is wearing an outfit very much like the one Buster Crabbe wears in the first Flash Gordon serial. And the girl that's clinging to his shoulder bears a uh, more than coincidental resemblance, I think, to Gene Rogers, who played Dale Arden in the first Flash Gordon serial. This is another nice Bolarski cover. Uh, again, it, it appears to have some movie still influences. There you see Jack Williamson, who, as talented as he was and, and as experienced as he was, because he's another guy who goes back to the late 20s in the Gernsback Pulps, but he was always struggling. If you've read his autobiography, uh, he's constantly beset with financial problems and worrying that this publisher is not paying on time and that publisher is offering a cheaper word rate than he was expecting. But nonetheless, he, he worked a lot. He contributed a lot of, of fine stories to Startling, although he did not stick around very long. He found more lucrative markets elsewhere. But in the early years of the magazine, he appears there several times. Here's another one, another still uh, you can see. The girl in the back, she's wearing an exact duplicate of the outfit that Gene Rogers wears in the first Flash Gordon serial. Uh, this was a very interesting story. I don't know really how this, how this came to be. There may be somebody here who knows more than I do, but this novel was written by Edgar Rice Burroughs' sons, uh, John Burroughs and uh, Hulbert Burroughs. And I have to confess, I have not read this particular story but um, I, I'm wondering how they got this assignment, or if it's something that they just pitched, if it's something they just sent in, uh, got to the slush pile, but in any case, it, it got into the magazine. This is the only thing that they did. However, it's long been believed, I'm sure some of you know, it's long believed that at least one, if not both of them, wrote the John Carter novelette that appears in Amazing Stories, the first one that appears in Amazing Stories in 1941. So uh, they, they certainly were directing their energies uh, along those lines. Here's another Bolarski cover. This is another early issue. Joseph J. Millard was not one of the big contributors, not especially prolific, but uh, he did make some good sales. And I think that's an interesting title, The Gods Hate Kansas. <laughs> I suspect they'd have pretty much the same reaction today. Uh, <laughs> One thing I'll, I'll say as a personal note, I was very lucky, I, I originally did not intend to go after a complete set of startling stories, which was short-sighted on my part because every issue I'd read up to that point I had enjoyed, but I was still collecting isolated issues until a dealer at this show, um, I should say a dealer who was at this show, it didn't happen at the show, it happened years ago, he came across file copies, publisher file copies of many of the thrilling group issues of startling. So because I've always been attracted to collecting high-grade pulps, I naturally bought a lot of them. I, bought, I really bought as many as I could get my hands on. And at that point, having amassed about a third of the run of 99 issues, I decided to go for the whole set. Well, later on I got lucky. 
because uh, I was going to a show for uh, movie memorabilia collectors, and a movie poster dealer from Pennsylvania had a big box of pulps, and a lot of them were startling stories. They were all post-war pulps, and they were all in uncommonly nice shape. They had near-white pages, and while not as pristine as the uncirculated file copies, they were about as good as a used copy could ever get. And I said, what's the story behind this? Turned out that he had gotten these from the estate of a collector, one of these typical science fiction collectors, who went off to war during World War II. His parents gave away all his old magazines in the paper drives, but when he came back from the war, he immediately started collecting again and bought every issue off the stands where he had a, his local news dealer held him every issue of every science fiction magazine. So he bought them, he read them very carefully, and he stored them equally carefully. So I wound up getting, long story short, over a period of several years, I wound up getting another third of the startling set from this one dealer, all from these original owner copies. So now I had two thirds of a set of really sharp copies. So I said, well, now I gotta get the rest of them. So I eventually finished the set. It took me probably six years altogether, but I had this high grade set. Uh, some of these I'm just gonna go through quick because they don't have any special significance. This is another Manly Wade Wellman from the early 40s. Again, these are out of order, which, for which I apologize. This is a, the second issue. So the lead novel was The Impossible World by Eando Binder, who of course was Otto Binder. Um, originally, the byline was created for Otto and his brother Earl, but I believe by this time Earl was out and Otto just kept using the byline. He, of course, in 1939 at Amazing Stories had created his famous character, Adam Link, the robot character. The uh, backup story in this issue, The Man from Mars by P. Schuyler Miller, another familiar name to science fiction fans. Now here's an Earl Berge cover. This is, um, if I recollect correctly, I think this is 1942. Tarnished Utopia by Malcolm Jameson is one of, is, um, he's one of the lesser lights, I would say, of startling. But this is another fun issue. Blood on the Sun by Hal K. Willis, this is another one that I have not read, so I can't tell you anything about this, but it's another nice cover. Now you see the wartime influence is evident. If you look at the bottom right corner, of, you'll see the um, stamp indicating buy war bonds, buy liberty bonds. Startling was affected, like all magazines, by the wartime paper shortages. When it started out in 1939, it was a bi-monthly. It maintained that frequency until about, I think about 1942 or early 43, at which point it became quarterly. It was quarterly for quite a while. Uh, then when the paper restrictions eased in 1946, it returned to a bi-monthly frequency and it finally became a monthly. Yeah, here's another, I believe this is Bolarski. This is not Earl Berge, and this is a 1942 issue. Now this, this appears to be rocket ships uh, using a laser or something like a laser to melt the earth. I don't really know how the science of this works, but <laughs> Ross Rockland contributed uh, Day of the Cloud. Rockland, as many of you may know, was not one of the top science fiction writers, but he was a, uh, I, in the second tier, he was apparently very well respected by uh, editors and fellow writers alike. Here's another Berlarski cover. Robert Moore Williams is contributing the lead novel, The uh, World Beyond the Sky. 
You can see here the devil motif during this period is very prominent. I don't really know what that was all about. Now you've got another Bergie. Now here, now tell me what that, does that monster look particularly threatening to you? <laughs> Seriously. I mean, it, it just doesn't work. This is another wartime issue. This now, we're back to 1940. No, I guess this is 42. You can see uh, the red, white, and blue sticker there, so this is definitely a war, wartime. Another Russ Rockland novel. This is a great cover. This is another Earl Berge cover. This is a 1944 issue, and this painting was reused by Thrilling uh, for the cover of the first issue of Fantastic Story magazine, which I think first issue was around 1950. Uh, this is another earlier one. This is another Edward Hamilton, The Prisoner of Mars. Yeah, this one is, uh, take a look at that. See if you can figure that out, because that's supposedly illustrating Norman Daniels' The Great Ego. So I don't really know what, what the deal is with this. And of course, a short story, and this was yet another Stanley G. Weinbaum story. Weinbaum was the gift that kept on giving as far as uh, standard was concerned. They also reprinted some Weinbaum stories in Captain Future, if I'm not mistaken. Now here's a great one. This is uh, Manly Wade Wellman's Strangers of the Heights, and uh, this is a zombie. So I'm assuming that the producers of uh, The Walking Dead must have seen this and said, oh, well, if you shoot him in the head, they'll go down. <laughs> now here's, uh, uh, this may be the first, again, since these are out of order, I can't swear to it, but I believe this is the first of the brass bra covers. This is a Berge cover, and this one also is from the wartime era, either 44 or 45. Here you have an early appearance in this magazine by Lee Brackett, who of course was married to Edmund Hamilton and um, very well known for her work in Planet Stories and some other science fiction pulps. She did a lot of fine stuff for, uh, for the, the thrilling group, although oddly enough her work for that company is not as well known as some of her other science fiction work for Fiction House and the other companies. Another Berge, another great wartime cover, uh, Iron Men by Noel Loomis. I don't remember anything about that story. Now here you have the return, the Captain Future pulp was one of those that was killed off in 1944. That was really the toughest year for paper and a number of pulps at various companies were killed off in 1943 through 1944. But they figured that uh, the, there was still a loyal following for Captain Future and that those readers could be inveigled into coming over and buying startling stories if they weren't doing so already. So this is the first of a number of 1945 through 46 issues that feature uh, uh, Captain Future and, and, and his companions in full-length novels. This, of course, is the robot, Greg. Is it Greg the robot or the android? Help me out. He's the, he's the robot, okay. So this is the first of those. This is another good cover. This is an issue, I forget, there's a story behind my purchase of this issue. There was somebody who threw a fit when he found me. I was going through boxes, and I got this issue. And uh, I said, oh, here's a nice one. I need this one. And there was a guy who had a want list in a, in a, a, paper, a binder, a three-ring binder. He had a thick want list, and he had been thumbing through the want list. So when I muttered, oh, yeah, I need this one, he looks at this, and he says, God damn it. 
He throws his binder to the floor. Papers are flying from the binder all over the place. He stomps around like a kid and he says, that's the one I've been looking for for 13 years. <laughs> now, what, what, what makes his outbreak really surprising is he had looked through this box not two minutes before I had. And he, in fact, had just left the box and turned away, which is why I started looking through it. And um, there's no real punchline to the story. That's just... <laughs> but I said, you know, well, you know, what do you want from me? Uh, here's uh, another nice wartime cover. Uh, this is interesting in that it's something different from the typical uh, brass bra girl alien hero formula that it has a rocket ship here. I'm sorry to say I don't know who painted this particular cover. Here's another brass bra, very good one. Here's another Captain Future novel, Outlaw World. This is um, winter 1946, which means this would have hit the stands uh, in late 1945. Although the war was over, there were still paper restrictions that were in place. Um, this is a subject that, by the way, for those of us who are interested in the publishing aspect rather than just the quality of the fiction, there's, there's a lot of discussion as to, well, why was paper still restricted after the war? And I've heard a number of, of theories as to why, but I, I don't know that I place much credence in any of them. Now, this is a good novel by Kuttner. I would say, uh, in the early years of Startling, the, the stories, while not uh, as um, childish as some of the stories you'd find in Ray Palmer's pre-war Amazing, they were definitely geared towards an adolescent sensibility. And as I mentioned before, they were not geared, there was very little in, in startling stories of the kind of hard science, so to speak, that you would find in the best stories in Astounding, where it really mattered to editor John Campbell that somebody got his facts right. Um, but Kuttner, at this time, um, uh, well, well, let me back up. The, the point I was trying to make was during the war years, they maintained, um, uh, under Oscar Friend, they maintained this, this sensibility of, of, of um, adolescent readers. And in the letter column was hosted by Sergeant Saturn, who was prone to you know, making puns and goofball remarks and silly replies to some of the letter writers. And it was really kind of childish. After the war, you started to see um, Sam Mines, who was another editor at the Thrilling Group, who took his science fiction much more seriously, began gradually, and I stress gradually, transitioning startling from the kind of space opera, adolescent um, um, type of story to, to more mature, uh, contemplative, and even in some cases, stories. Kuttner's Dark World, which is, uh, I think, kind of straddles both worlds because my recollection of it, it's been a number of years since I've read it, many years, but I remember being impressed by this as being something much better than, than the Kuttner stuff that I had been reading that, that came from just a few years earlier. And I remember liking this, um, uh, this issue very much. And the, the Hall of Fame reprint, The Man with X-Ray Eyes by Edmund Hamilton, that's also a very good story, as I recall. Again, I'm sorry to be vague about some of this stuff, but in all the years I've been collecting these things, you read these things 30 years ago, and it's hard to remember all the details. This, I think, is a Frank Paul cover. I'm not 100% sure. This is a, a, an earlier one. This is an early, this is, probably, this is around 1940, this particular issue. 
Here's another Captain Future. This one is The Solar Invasion. Now, this one was written by Manly Wade Wellman. Hamilton was not available to write all these, and I forget the reason why, but uh, there are a couple of these that are bylined to Brett Sterling, which I believe was the pen name of Joseph um, Samanchin or Samanchin. He, he was another thrilling group writer who wrote a lot of stuff under house names. But this one is billed to Wellman, and there, this is either the last or the next to last of this particular group of Captain Future stories. Here's another post-war issue, The Star of Life, Edward Hamilton. Now, by this time, Berge is doing the covers pretty much exclusively, and almost all of them downplay technological stuff. There, were no, there are no rocket ships. There are no futuristic uh, landscapes of futuristic architecture. It's all about good-looking girls, you know, wearing, preferably as, wearing as little as possible. And, um, you know, do you ever stop and think about these things of girls in, in helmets and two-piece bathing suits floating around in space. That's not really very practical, but that's the kind of thing that sold startling. So you, you find a lot of that. Yeah, this is a nice one, too. This is another good Cutner story, Lands of the Earthquake, and another Wellman reprint, The Discmen of Jupiter. But see, there again, I, I, I don't see how that's a practical outfit to be wearing in space. I really don't. Murray Leinster here, of course, this uh, uh, Hall of Fame classic is Jack Williamson from his earlier days. Now here's, this is an interesting novel. Again, this is post-war. This is um, The Blue Flamingo by Hannes Bach, the famous fantasy and science fiction artist. This is one of his relatively few attempts at fiction. Very interesting story, as I recall. Another Hamilton reprint, The Conquest of Two Worlds, rounding out the issue. Why is my belly going? Now, startling during the war years, of course, as a, as a consequence of the, the paper shortage had gone into a very small size, which many of the thrilling group pulps did. I mean, if you'll, most of you know, if you collect these things, that the average paper, the average magazine size was about 128 pages. During the war, in order to keep as many titles going as they could, thrilling cut down on the page counts of many of their pulps, some of which are as low as 80 pages. And to compensate for this, they reduced the size of the type to very, very small, like seven or eight point type, which makes them a little hard on the eyes when you're reading them. Also, as a practical matter, and again, this is something only of interest to those of us who collect these things, those really thin spines are bad because it's very easy to bow the magazines. They get warped and bowed very easily, and that's a real pain in the neck. Another Cutner, The Mask of Circe. That's a, I also remember that being a very good story. Now, this is one of my favorites. This is... Um, a 1939 issue, this is the September issue, which would make this the fifth issue. It, this cover was reprinted in one of the Warren Monster magazines, Famous Monsters or Monster World. And I don't know how, how the rumor got started, but supposedly this cover inspired Ed Wood, the notorious Ed Wood, to film his classic Plan 9 from Outer Space. 
which was originally called Grave Robbers from Outer Space. So this particular cover is by Alex Schomburg, who was doing a lot of pulp work at this time, but who later became a comic book artist and during the war years worked, uh, worked not only for the thrilling group comics, but also for the comics published by Martin Goodman of the uh, Marvel Empire. Schomburg was noted for his riotous uh, cover scenes where there would be a lot going on. It seems to me there's a lot going on here. So this was also uh, a cash prize contest as, as uh, another stunt to build up circulation. Uh, they asked, uh, come up with your own caption for what's going on in this picture. Uh, they did they, and they did print the responses, and there were some very inventive explanations for what was going on here. I don't remember them offhand, but uh, they're easy to read. Here's another nice Berge cover. Now, here's a real classic issue. Uh, Frederick Brown was one of the truly great pulp writers, for those of you who are not familiar with him. He worked with detective and science fiction, and he was equally good in both genres. What Mad Universe is a true classic. It is about, the protagonist is actually a pulp writer. He's a pulp fiction writer who wakes up one morning and he's got to deliver a story to an editor and uh, he goes to the office and everything that he knows is upside down and it turns out, long story short, that he's in an alternate universe. So there's a lot of back and forth and the details, he's meeting the same people he meets but he's interacting with them differently and there's all kinds of complications and it is one of the true, uh, I think one of the true classics of science fiction. I really, I really uh, can't underestimate, uh, overestimate it. It was, of course, like many of the novel lengths that appeared in Startling Stories, it was later published in other formats, this one in, in paperback. This, too, from this, around the same period of time, Arthur C. Clarke's Against the Fall of Night. Now, this is a, another story that he expanded and was subsequently, it was published under, between hard covers, although a lot of people, and I know a lot of people who are hardcore science fiction fans, actually prefer the pulp version to the hardcover version. So another nice Berge cover for uh, Henry Kuttner's The Time Axis. Startling by this time, when you get into the late 40s, I started to explain earlier and got myself distracted that they had these really thin issues, but after the war, as sales started picking up and they were able to increase the frequency, return to a, a bi-monthly schedule, um, they were able to increase the page size. They went up to 140 pages and then eventually to 160. And um, they raised the price to a quarter. Again, you can see the concentration here. It's all about good-looking men and good-looking women. This one, for the reprint, they went to a slightly later era, so instead of reprinting something from the Gernsback Wonder Stories, they actually reprinted uh, Hollywood on the Moon, which was the first installment of a Henry Kuttner series that debuted in Thrilling Wonder Stories in 1938. Now that's another reason that I like this particular issue. The Hot House Planet by Arthur K. Barnes. Here's another. Now again, that's supposed to be some kind of dinosaur. He looks to me like a fugitive from a Godzilla movie. He just doesn't, he just doesn't make, I don't see him being real threatening. And he, that, 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 by the way, is his tongue, if you're sitting in the background, that's his tongue wrapped around the spaceman in the background. So that had to be painful, I can't imagine. 
This issue at one time, believe it or not, commanded a, a premium in certain circles because there's an L. Ron Hubbard short story in it. it I never understood why that was the case because uh, neither this, the issue is not particularly rare and the Hubbard story is not particularly good. But that, as you know, that doesn't always matter in collecting what the quality of something is. Again, another Berge story we're, we're going through the period. Now this begins the, the 50s, the last decade of startling stories. This is the January 1950 issue. And it features the return of Captain Future. Here's Greg the robot again. And um, it's another great Earl Berge, good girl cover. There has been in recent years, and I have to say I haven't followed all the speculation, but it is believed now that the five uh, Captain Future novelettes, which appeared in these 1950 and 1951 issues of Startling Stories, they're very dissimilar to the earlier things. And it is believed that they're actually the work of Hamilton's wife, Lee Brackett. And I think the case is, while it's certainly not an opener or shut case, they're certainly persuasive because, quite frankly, I think Brackett was a better writer than, than Hamilton was. And these stories are very interesting. Uh, uh, one or two of them are overtly comic. And um, there's another one that's experimental that's told from the point of view of the android, um, either the android or the robot. But these five stories are actually nice. But it's interesting that they represent, yet again, you see the turning away from space opera elements and going into a different kind of, of science fiction. Now here we bounce back to 1939. This is um, the sixth issue. I love this cover. This is the Fortress of Utopia. Again, this is a kind of Noah's Ark graft, uh, science fiction grafted onto the Noah's Ark. And, um, it's the kind of story that Williamson was very good at. A Martian Odyssey was reprinted. This is the groundbreaking Stanley Weinbaum uh, story from the 1934 Wonder Stories. This was their Hall of Fame reprint. Again, as you can see these stories, you, you can see you know, how valuable magazines like this were to fans, especially younger fans coming up who knew from the older fans that certain stories were considered more impressive than others. And they were saying, well, where can I get that? Where can I get that? So when you had a guy like Mort Weisinger choosing these stories, he knew that there were fans who were, uh, uh, wanted these. Now we're back to 1948, The Lady is a Witch, another terrific girl, Berge, good girl cover. Very hard to get any science fiction connection out of this, but I don't think it's especially startling either, for that matter. Here's another one that I, uh, a lot of people like very much. John D. MacDonald was another writer who, who worked in several genres. He, probably best known for his detective fiction, but Wine of the Dreamers, I think a lot of people would say is his best science fiction story. I know it certainly impressed me, and it was another one that was reprinted in, in um, book form later on. As was this one, The City at World's End by Edmund Hamilton. Now see, there's a teddy bear. <laughs> Got this guy in a, in a you know, it's, he either wants to wrestle with him or serve him porridge. I don't, I don't know which one. This is a terrific cover, and I believe we have someone in the room who owns the original painting to this cover. Is that true? Is he back here? Doug, is this one of your covers? I, I thought this was yours. Well, anyway, this original painting was sold not too long ago. I believe it was sold on the Heritage Auction site. And it's another Earl Berge. It's very striking. 
is another Bergie. Here's Jack Vance, who of course would make a name for himself and become very highly regarded. This is some of his early pulp work. I, I believe Vance's first pulp sale is to Thrilling Wonder Stories around 1945. So he'd already submitted and had published a number of stories, but uh, in, in the new era of startling, as they were trying to add some sophistication to the stories, I think he, uh, you know, he was a name to be reckoned with. Earthman No More. I think this is the last of the Captain Future novels, and it's, in, in many ways it's one of the most interesting, because Captain Future discovers the source of ultimate power, and it nearly drives him insane. Um, this is something that you would never have seen in the early space opera days of the character. But again, it represents the notion that there were, there, there were um, other areas of, um, that science fiction could cover. So it's interesting here you have husband and wife sharing the cover, Lee Brackett, with Hamilton. Here's a, another extremely nice Bergie cover, and I think this cover also was sold not too long ago, the cover painting. Now we're moving uh, deeper into the 50s. Sam Merwin took over the editorship, and he decided it was time to get rid of the old-fashioned um, girl with the brass bra, the good girl art cover, because now the fiction was maturing at a rate and to a point that those covers were distractions, and they were actually misleading readers, and that the type of readership that Merwin was interested in cultivating was not the same uh, readership that would have uh, liked this, liked a story like this. This is uh, The Three Planeteers by Edward Hamilton. This is, I believe this is the audio book that we're gonna be getting off. This is another early issue, uh, 1940 or so. Now we're back to the 50s. So you can see the difference here. Oh, there's another crummy Bergy dinosaur. <laughs> this, I think this is the last of the good girl covers. Uh, this is around 1952. It's another nice Bergy. So now at this point, we're getting, this is all 52, 53. So around 1953, startling change. They, the first thing they did was they got rid of the old logo and replaced it with this one. You can see the border, you can see the design they followed. You had colored borders with a, a illustration inside. The girls are, are pretty much gone by this point, or certainly downplayed, they're certainly more demure. Now here, of course, is the key issue, August 1952. This is the one with Philip Jose's The Lovers, which of course was famous as, I'm gonna call it the first, there may have been another one, but certainly the first significant science fiction story to deal in a non-exploitative, non-salacious way with the, I, the concept of humans and aliens copulating and, and producing children. Um, it was considered kind of a, a taboo. There was a lot of feedback. The farmer people can tell you a lot more about this uh, than I can. I still think it's a terrific story. I read it not, reread it not long ago. I still think it holds up. It was remarkably daring to print this story. There was a sequel, which I don't think is as good. But again, it shows the willingness of Startling's editors to really put the past behind them and really move in a, in a new direction. And this, I should point out, is at a time that Campbell's Astounding, which had been the leader in the field for so long, was getting pretty stodgy at this point. 
He had already fallen victim to the Dianetics hoax, and he, um, he was hung up on his psi stories, that's PSI stories. Um, astounding was going in a completely different direction, and I think it had become boring. Startling at this point was more experimental, it was more daring, and even though it printed a number of mediocre stories, the ratio of, of good to mediocre favored the good quite a bit. Oh, we snuck in another good girl here. Uh, bouncing back again, here's another one of the early ones. This is the one I need to upgrade. You'll notice that chip out of that corner. So if any of you have a really sharp copy of this issue, you can, you can hold me up for it. Back to the 50s. So eventually, they scaled back and they, they did the thing, they trimmed the edges. So fans, there were a lot of fans for whom untrimmed edges was a big deal with science fiction. They demanded it from Astounding, which was the only Street and Smith pulp at the time that regularly trimmed edges, and eventually they got to Startling here too. These issues are, are interesting. There are some really first-rate stories in some of them, and there are some mediocre stories, but you can tell that they're not content to rest on their laurels. As I said before, this is an experimental period. This is Moth uh, and Rust in this issue. That's the sequel to the farmer story I just mentioned, The Lovers. That's another early one. That's, this is from the pre-Good Girl art period when uh, Bolarski was still printing some odd, um, more traditional covers. These are 50s issues. So now, Startling is the last man standing. This is 1955, this is the last year. Thrilling was about to give up its pulp line for the most part. Thrilling Wonder had already folded, as had Fantastic Story, which was pretty much a, a reprint book by that time. So you can see here that Startling Stories combined with Thrilling Wonder and Fantastic Stories. It's significant, I think, that, that of all these magazines, they made a specific effort to keep Startling going longer than they did the others, which I think reflects a confidence in the editorial product. They obviously must have thought it was a, a better magazine. And this is the last issue. Three great science fiction magazines and one, but not great enough to keep publishing. So, <laughs> Naked Sky by James E. Gunn was the last. This is the fall 1955 issue. And on this note, a terrific magazine um, comes to an end. I would say again to you, those of you who collect and who look through the old magazines upstairs, if you're interested in collecting, even though there are 99 issues in this run, it's a common magazine. And it's common because a lot of people liked it and a lot of people saved it. So a lot of copies are still in existence. And even though uh, you're not likely to find them all in high grade, perfect white pages condition, they're around, it's an easy magazine to get, it's not terribly expensive, you're not gonna pay $300 an issue for it. And uh, if you wanna get a great cross section of science fiction and see how one magazine reflected several changing trends down through a 15 year period, this is the one to get. I think it's a lot of fun and I, I think you would find it so. So with that, we'll break it off and move on. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast. Brought to you by the Pulp Net, when your next adventure was just a dime away. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps.